You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, saints, there are two things I want us to have on our minds as we look to Romans 12 today. Two. Number one. Similar to how I introed last week, we are not Christians because of what we do. We are Christians because of what we believe. We are Christians because God has made us alive together with Christ. Through faith, we are in Him, we're united to Him. And that identity determines and drives our duty. There are no ways that a person can live that will make him or her a Christian. But upon being born again and united to Christ, there are ways that the redeemed live. So that's one. Have that in our minds. Two, as Christians, we are not living for this life. We are living for the next one. In the church, we are not living for this world. We are preparing ourselves for the world to come. This is how we must view the Christian life. And this is how we must view Christian living. So with those two things in our minds, let's open the scriptures to Romans chapter 12. We will be looking this week at verses 9 through 21. And as you are turning, remember that for 11 chapters, Paul had expounded the gospel. At points, he had expounded the law and the gospel and how those two words of God complement one another in God's economy of salvation. Paul then, at the beginning of Romans 12, turns to consider how the saints are to live in light of that, in light of the gospel. As we considered last week, Paul began the chapter with a couple of significant exhortations, and he grounds them in everything that he had written up to that point and he grounds them in the mercies of God. That's the basis of his appeal. On the basis of the mercies of God, in light of everything he had written, he exhorts the saints in Rome and thereby us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. It's a big deal. Through our union with Christ, we know that we are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And we have been set apart to be a holy priesthood unto the Lord. And so, we are living sacrifices. We give our lives in service to our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Paul then exhorts us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, of our inner being. 
We once followed the course of this world. That was true of us all, but no longer. Our minds, our inner beings are renewed through the ministry of the Holy Spirit according to God's law and God's gospel, according to his mercy and his grace and his goodness, according to our union with Christ and according to God's great love for us. We are renewed. God is the one who does this work of renewal by his spirit and as it pertains to us, we live intentional lives making conscious decisions that are in step with our renewal. It's what we do. Few things, if any, would render these exhortations ineffective more than pride and high thoughts of self. And so Paul calls the saints in Rome to humility and sober thinking regarding each individual's place in the body of Christ and of each individual's need of others. Paul employs the analogy of a body and its parts. There is a need for each part to serve its function. Each part has its own distinct function, and no one part can do everything. Nor does any one part appropriate to itself the functions of others. The members of the body can only function together. Separately, they cannot function as they should. As we consider, there is a critical distinctness amongst the members of the body, and there is an essential mutual dependency amongst the members of the body. This is God's wise design to knit our hearts together in the Lord Jesus Christ for the mutual building up of the body of Christ. And then Paul emphasizes, very simply, whatever gifts we have, we should use them well. Everything that we possess is a gift bestowed upon us by God. And so we should cultivate them. We should use the gifts the Lord has given for his glory and honor. And we should use the gifts God has given for the good of our brothers and our sisters. With all that, by way of context for us, let's look to Romans 12 in verse 9. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, So far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Those are good words. And we thank the Lord for them today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time is to preach this message in three parts and then offer a conclusion. So three parts and a conclusion. Our text today is a list of exhortations. In particular, it's a list of exhortations regarding how the redeemed live, how the saints are to conduct themselves. And so, with that in mind, that this is a list of exhortations, part one, I want to set up the exhortations. I want to set up the exhortations. So, by the mercies of God, by virtue of our union with Christ, You and I have been justified, declared righteous, forgiven of sin, absolved of guilt, rescued from the ruin and misery into which we were plunged by Adam, our first father, and into which we have run headlong. We are, because we have been united to Christ We are being sanctified. We are being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. And because of God's great mercy, and because of what Christ has accomplished, we have a certain hope that we will live with God forever, and then forever after that. And so, as it were, we go present ourselves to God. We go to our Heavenly Father as His people who have received mercy. We go to Him as His people who are now priests in His household. And we go to Him as His people who are not to be conformed to this world. We go to Him as His people, adopted, loved, and known. And we ask Him, what would you have us do? Father, What would you have us do? And his answer, as we consider Romans 12, begins this way. With humility, immerse yourself in the local church. Use your gifts. Love your neighbor. With humility, immerse yourself in the local church. Use your gifts. Love your neighbor. And not in this transactional way like the world does. Because of what God has done for us, beloved. Because of what he has promised us. Because of what he has done and is doing and will do for us. We give and use our lives for the good of others. So that's a significant piece of setting up these exhortations which we are going to consider today. And as we thought about last week, in light of God's great mercy and love, how do you, how do I 
want to live. We want to honor him. We want his name to be magnified. We want others to taste and see that the Lord is good, that Christ is a savior. The world is longing for forgiveness and mercy and absolution, and it is nowhere to be found save here. Christ for sinners. We live to make Christ known. We live to herald his love and mercy and grace and to lock arms with other adopted children of God on our way to our heavenly home. Keep that in mind as we consider Paul's exhortations. Last comment by way of setting up the the exhortations we're going to look at today. Keep in mind that all of these exhortations are law. They are law. And the law is good. Amen, somebody? We will have opportunity to see how good the law is today. And we will have opportunity to see how to use the law and apply it rightly to our lives as Christians. What a wonderful opportunity. So that's part one, setting up the exhortations. Part two, we're just going to consider the exhortations themselves. We're going to walk through the text. There is not a particular order to these exhortations. That's my take, and that's the take of of commentators and theologians through history. There's not a particular order for the way these are listed, so we shouldn't overanalyze the order in which they're given, in other words. Don't get tripped up on that. There is some repetition. There is interrelatedness, to be sure. And all of these exhortations are obviously good. So we're going to walk our way through them. You will be helped to have your scripture in front of you as we do this. Verse 9, Paul begins, let love be genuine. So in the church, we are to love one another in a way that is sincerely concerned for the well-being of the other person. We are to be motivated by a genuine concern for the good of our brothers and our sisters. Now, you don't need me to tell you this. But so much of the love that exists in the world is not like that at all. And we're going to be real. We, as sinner saints, are still prone to this too. We operate in a very transactional way. I love you in as much as it benefits me. It's normal. It's natural in this world. I love you because I see in you a person who can help deliver on all the plans and the dreams I have for my life. You're valuable to me for that reason, and so I love you. But the kind of love that we are called to as the saints of God is entirely different than that. It is not self-serving. It is primarily and exclusively motivated for the good of the beloved, not for our good. This is supernatural. Much grace is required to love like this. I trust you're going to be crashing up against that a lot as we go through these exhortations, and we'll get there later. Every one of these we read, like, yep, amen, that is wonderful, and I need much grace to do this. 
I'm not going to do it in my own strength. Paul goes on, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So some of the beauty of this sentence is how simple it is. I said last week that we're really good at missing the point of things. We're also really good at making things very complicated, unnecessarily complicated. We love codes. We codify everything. Give me the list, and I'll knock it out of the park. We need not make it complicated. One of the beauties of God's law, one of the beauties of Christian living, is that it is actually very simple. It is self-authenticatingly good stuff. Now, it is unfathomably deep, and we need grace in order to live this way, but it is not complicated. Let's rejoice in that simplicity and how clear the Lord is in his word. Paul writes here that we are to abhor what is evil, so obviously we're not to do evil. That's plain. If God says it's bad, run from it. Again, that's simple. On the flip side, we are obviously to do good. If God says it's good, if he says it's upright, pursue it with all your heart. But there's more, though, than just not doing evil or striving to do good. In our turning from evil, it's very clear, if we are to abhor evil, we are to hate it. That's a heart-level thing. And in our pursuit of good, we are not just to pursue doing it, we are to cling to it with all of our might and with all of our soul. Surely, these are things that God has wrought in us through the new birth. These things are true of us. And he continues to work in us by his spirit through his means of grace to make these things increasingly true of us. Question though, you're thoughtful people, you may be ahead of me already. How are we going to know what's good? How are we going to know what's good? We look to God's word, do we not? We look to the law. Question. How are we going to know what is evil? Same answer. We look to the word. We look to the law. A few other questions. How are we going to grow in our hatred of evil? How are we going to grow in our love for what is good? How will we cling all the more to what is good? What is Precisely through the renewing of our inner being. It is through the renewal of our minds. It is through all of the things that we thought about last week and talk about all the time. That God works in and through us by his spirit. He is the one who does the work of sanctification and we live consciously, intentionally, pursuing what God says is good and running from what God says is evil. And we live consciously in the church. We prioritize the fellowship of the saints. We show up here Sunday after Sunday. We sit under the word. We sing. We pray. We come to his table. And God is faithful to continue to work in us through these things that are actually very ordinary. These are ordinary things through which God accomplishes his extraordinary ends. 
So in every good way, beloved, do not sit there and freak out and agonize over how am I going to grow in love of good and hatred of evil? How am I going to grow in holiness? Trust Christ, show up to church, love the saints, and it will go well. Because God ultimately is the one who is faithful, and he is the one who will do it as we read from 1 Thessalonians this morning. Verse 10, put your eyes there. Love one another with brotherly affection. There's love again. You will notice that in these later chapters of Romans, humility, unity, and love show up over and over and over again. Actually, if you read the New Testament epistles, you'll find that very same thing to be true. Humility, unity in the body of Christ, love for each other all the time is on the lips and the pens of the apostles. So if, just a brief aside comment here. If you ever hear people talking about personal holiness, if you ever hear people talking about what it looks like to be a godly person, and at the top of those lists, you do not find love for the brethren, and you do not find humility, you do not find a concern for unity in the body of Christ, we ain't reading the same book. Because it is so plain that these things are priority A when it comes to God's design for his people. Our love for one another in the church, writes Paul, that should look similar to the love that we have for blood, for family. We, after all, have one father. He has adopted us, and we are all his children. People say all the time that blood is thicker than water, do they not? Fair enough. But the bond of the Spirit through our union with Christ is thicker than even blood. And so we love one another accordingly. Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honor. So again, this is that humility piece. This is considering others as more significant than yourselves. This fits well with brotherly love. Nothing will alienate a person more than the thought that he is despised. Nothing will alienate a person more than the thought that others look down on her. Haughtiness and a desire for self-advancement are the great enemy of genuine brotherly love in the church. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2, 3. Verse 11 Paul goes on, do not be slothful in zeal. You know this, I know this. The Christian life is an active one. It's an active life in particular in serving others. We know ourselves, right? We always have a tendency to want to coast, to put it in cruise control. We do. We all, at times, fight the temptation to just check out. But Paul encourages us, don't do that. Don't check out on your brothers and sisters. Don't be lazy in spending your effort on behalf of your brothers and sisters. 
Be fervent in spirit, he says. So doing what we are considering and doing even what we just considered, not growing slothful in zeal in serving, it requires a fervency that only the Lord himself can kindle in our hearts. And so, to use really old language, we shake off the sloth and we cherish the flame, the flame that God has put there. Paul concludes that sentence, though. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So in all of this, we keep in mind that we are ultimately serving the Lord. We must remember this. If we serve and love and give for the result that it will produce in other people, we will be discouraged often. We are constantly seeking to love and serve other sinner saints, and just like we often don't respond the ways that we should, neither will our brothers and sisters always respond the way that they should. And so we remember that first and foremost, we serve the Lord, and he sees and he knows. That's encouraging. That is sustaining over the long haul. And I think it is right to observe here, as Martin Luther did, that this statement, serve the Lord, guides what we do. In this sense, we don't do what we think is good. We do what the Lord has said is good. We serve him. There's a lot of confusion, even in the church today, about what good works are. There are a lot of things that people throw out. I mean, you go to a Christian bookstore, if those even exist anymore, I guess they exist online, and you begin to read all of the really good imperative things that Christians need to be doing, or how there are 56 different spiritual disciplines or whatever it may be, you read these things and you come to realize pretty quickly there's a lot of confusion about what good works, biblically defined, are. What should we prioritize? What should we give our lives to? Pretty simple. I could stand up here and try to wax eloquent, but I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from our confession. Chapter 16, paragraph 1 on good works, reads this way. Good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. That's good. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions, but are not truly good. There are many things that have the appearance of godliness, but in reality are not helpful. That's Colossians chapter 2. So we serve the Lord and we do what he has said is good. Like the things that we're looking at right now, even in Paul's letter to the Romans. Put your eyes on verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now I'm going to make brief comments now because we will reflect more on these themes later. So just know that. The hope that we are to rejoice in is clearly grounded in what Jesus has done for us. That's obvious. And the hope that we are to rejoice in is clearly not in this life, but the next one. That's obvious. Looking to Christ and to the hope of the world to come will serve to ground us in the midst of trial and tribulation. The road to being patient in tribulation is grounded in the hope of Christ 
and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And for us to have this kind of wise, godly perspective, where are we going to get it? It's not going to come from within. So we're going to constantly be needing to go to who? To our heavenly Father in prayer. Prayer is the outworking of the life of faith. Prayer is a demonstration of our dependency upon the Lord to give us everything that we need and don't have. Where else would we get the help we need? We certainly will not hope in the world to come out of our own perspective. We certainly won't be patient in tribulation in our own strength. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's good. We'll come back to some of those themes later. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Two comments by way of clarification here. First, this is not a call for us to provide for people who are idle. People who just don't want to even try to to provide for themselves, right? The apostles spill ink about that elsewhere. The idle are to be admonished. If you don't work, you don't eat, that kind of thing. Second comment by way of clarification. The kind of hospitality that Paul points to here is not really like having people over for lunch kind of hospitality. This is more dire than that. This is when people are displaced from their home and are in need or they've encountered difficult circumstances and are in need. That's the kind of hospitality Paul is pointing to here. So there will be times when saints among us encounter hard times, where in spite of their best efforts, they can't make ends meet, or when they have been thrust into a situation where it's not feasible for them to provide for themselves, where they don't have a place to stay. That has happened and will continue to happen among us. And in such times, we are to collectively contribute to the meeting of those needs. It is a good thing. Sometimes that will be the giving of our money and our resources. Sometimes that might be the opening of our own homes. We are to care for those in need. We are to care for the vulnerable among us, especially, God's word says, widows and orphans. As James writes, this is true religion, that we would care for those who need it and that we would care for those who are unable to care for themselves. May it be here at CBC. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So this is clearly aimed at relating to people outside the church who are our enemies. We might have disagreements with our brothers and sisters, but they're not persecuting us, right? So this is considering our relationships outside the church. And this language here in verse 14, and even some of the language later on in verses 17 and following, this is straight Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount stuff. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This language here in verse 14 is 
as was prayed earlier, is Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If we would be imitators of our Lord and Savior, this is how we live. Now, that's lofty and beautiful and good. Let's be honest about ourselves for a second and observe even how Paul writes this sentence. Notice how he feels the need to double down in the verse. You see it? How he says, bless those who persecute you. And to clarify, bless and don't curse them. So so, so he knows, it's like, we all might be prone. It's like, oh, I'll bless them now. But I'm probably going to curse them, you know, behind closed doors, under my breath. I'm kind of cursing them at the same time. Paul says, don't do that. Do not curse them. Bless them only. Take this to heart. And thank God, too, for little things in his word. He knows us. The way the Spirit of God has inspired the Scriptures, he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust, and the apostles write accordingly. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them, and by the way, fam, don't curse them when you do that. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, this precept, again, simple. Unfathomably deep, need a lot of grace, but simple. The blessings of others should give me joy. And the sufferings of others should affect me with sorrow. And now, for this to not be true of us, if the blessings of others do not fill us with joy, and if the sorrow of others does not affect us with sorrow, that's clearly sin. To not be joyful at the blessing of a brother, has an, it's, there's a name for that. It's called envy. To not be grieved by the suffering of a sister is cruel. But oh, how much grace we need. In a church even this size, there will be so many opportunities for us to do this, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and to weep with those who are weeping. But it is deep, sometimes heavy stuff. Imagine that you know, you're, that, you're that young couple or you're the, the married couple who's longing for children and can't have them. And then the couple who just got married and wasn't even trying to have a kid yet, they're, they're pregnant called to rejoice. That's supernatural. Grace is required. Or you're a brother or sister who longs to be married. You're older than you ever thought you'd be, and you're still single. And your buddy in the church, your friend in the church who really wasn't in a hurry to get married at all, is married young, and you're called to rejoice. We're called to rejoice when people are blessed, even when they receive the very things that we've been longing for and don't have. May the Lord give us grace for that. When it comes to weeping with those who weep, sitting with people in deep pain and grief is uncomfortable. Let's be real about that. It's hard to sit with people who are in deep pain and grief. And we all do this. We say things to try to make it better. Right? 
In some senses, we mean well. We're trying to serve the person who's weeping. But in other ways, let's be real about this too, we're trying to serve ourselves so that it's not as uncomfortable. May the Lord give us grace to sit with people whose hearts are breaking. Give us grace to just be. May the Lord give us wisdom to say effectively to our grieving brothers and sisters, I I don't claim to fully understand your pain. I certainly don't claim to know how to fix it, but I'm here. I'm here. And I'm not going anywhere. May the Lord give us wisdom. In our local church, you know this, there is joy and sorrow going on simultaneously all the time. And much, much sympathy and compassion and wisdom and maturity are required if we're going to walk together in ways that are good. And we depend upon the Lord for all of those things. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. There's that unity and humility stuff again. The great enemies to unity in the church, pride and high thoughts of self. Remember this. Those who are wise in their own sight tend to be stubborn and incorrigible. Incorrigible, what, what, brother? What does that word mean? It means you can't be taught anything. And such people who are stubborn and incorrigible, wise in their own sight, says Martin Luther, are the cause of dissensions, the most vicious peace breakers and destroyers of the unity of the faith. May we take that to heart. We must be continually brought back to our need of all of the other parts of the body of Christ and our own limitations, not only in giftedness, but in wisdom and perspective. Verses 17 to 21, we're going to take these together. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. It's as natural as breathing to respond to evil with evil, to retaliate. It's normal, but we are not to do so, not in any measure, not to any degree. We are to live thoughtfully so that nothing we would do might bring reproach upon Christ, the gospel, or the church. Verse 18, love the way this verse is worded. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, sometimes peace isn't possible. We know that. And at the same time, we are responsible for our conduct. Both are true. Now, we shouldn't understand this verse to be telling us that we need to sin or break God's law or violate our consciences or not speak the truth in order for there to be peace. That's not the word. But it does mean that we should be kind, that we should be courteous, that we should be considerate of other people in the ways that we obey the Lord and speak the truth and live according to conscience. You know, sometimes people wear it around like a badge of honor, the fact that they offend everybody, you know, because it's a, well, I'm just, you know, I'm a soldier for the truth, and sometimes you got to take some bullets for Jesus. That's how people act sometimes. That may be true because we live in a world that hates the truth. It's possible that that's what's going on, but if you are the common denominator in all of your relationships and everybody is offended by you on a regular basis, maybe it's not just you're saying what's true. Maybe you're a jerk, and you need to think that through. We should be kind and compassionate and gracious in the ways that we speak and engage. Certainly that's true here, but it's true with people outside of the church. 
verses 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Notice that term of endearment, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, he quotes Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when wronged, it's natural for fallen humans to be enraged with cravings for revenge. A lot of books are written about it. A lot of movies are made about it. There's a lot of, number of miniseries on Netflix about revenge. But isn't it interesting how when we wrong someone else, we tend to be quite lenient with ourselves, do we not? But when others wrong us, we're going to get our pound of flesh. But we are not to seek revenge as the people of Christ. Not of any kind. Not publicly or privately. We're not to do that. Rather, we're to leave it to the Lord who will administer perfect justice in the end. And what we are to do is to do good to our enemies and even pray for them, for their own conversion even, that they might become friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, regarding the phrase of heaping burning coals upon the heads of our enemies, I think we can take it this way. Either our kindness will be used of God to incite our enemies to repentance, or it will serve to torment them. Which it is, we leave to God. For our part, we greet evil with kindness and love. We're to not fall into the same sort of evil that's been done to us. And we know that regardless of the result, that effort is not wasted and that labor is not in vain because the Lord is faithful. Now, the question is raised. This is a little trailer for next week. The question is raised, all right, brother, if that's true, then what about justice in this life? Do you feel that? What about justice now? Are we just simply not to care about that? Are we not to pursue justice in this life at all? Well, Paul's going to give his answer in the next chapter. You know, the one on the government? That might not be the answer that you want, but come back next week. Happy Thanksgiving, right? God and government sermon. That's all by way of part two. Part three, we're going to try to make, a, make some time here. I trust we're doing okay. Part three, law and gospel lenses regarding these exhortations. Law and gospel lenses regarding these exhortations. So a few things here, guys. One, we read all of this, Romans 12, 9 to 21, and we rightly conclude, I have a lot of repenting to do. Amen? I have a number of things that I need to repent of. I, I have not done this. There's a lot of this that I haven't done at all, and there is a whole host of it, namely all of it, that I have not done as I should. And there's none of it that I've done perfectly at a spiritual level. I have a lot of repenting to do. That is a good use of God's law in the life of the Christian. The Christian life is one of ongoing repentance, turning from ourselves to Christ. Right? But next, this is the best part. You understand when you read these words that Jesus is the embodiment of every single word of this. Jesus is the fulfillment and embodiment of every single word on this page. Let love be genuine. Now before the feast of the Passover, this is the night he, he's going to die. 
before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, what did he do? He loved them to the end. John 13, 1. Let love be genuine. I'd say so. Then, as we know, having perfectly fulfilled the law, he gave his life for us. He conquered the one who has the power of death, all so that we might be set free. I'd say that he loved us. And he loves us still. And he lives forever to make intercession for you and for me. Paul writes, repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Bless those who persecute you. You remember what Isaiah wrote about him? Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. You remember when he hung on the cross, the religious leaders and and many people even in the community, they wagged their fingers at him. They taunted him. They mocked him. Come down if you're the Christ. Save yourself if you're the Christ. But he stayed there to save us. And he prayed for his enemies as he did. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good, says Paul. Every minute of his life, Jesus did that. Outdo one another in showing honor. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul wrote in Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did he outdo others in showing honor? Good grief. Listen to this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Paul writes in Romans 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. What is written of our Savior? That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That he, in his humanity, was perfected through suffering. And then, of course, there is Gethsemane, a great model of crying out to the Heavenly Father in prayer, even in the hour of deepest need, in the most pointed grief and agony. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He was all of those things. Do not be haughty, Paul writes, but associate with the lowly. I'd say Jesus did that too. He associated with the worst of sinners. He took a lot of heat for it, too. You know, he associated with outcasts, like lepers. Not only did he associate with them, he would touch them. And the remarkable thing about him, when Jesus touched a leper, Jesus did not become unclean. The leper became clean. It's what he does. It's what he did. He associated with the lowly. He associated with a man born blind who Jesus, of course, gave him his sight. And you know that eventually this man was kicked out of the synagogue, the center of Jewish life, kicked out. And one of the most beautiful pieces of John chapter 9 
is found in verse 35. When Jesus heard that he had been thrown out of the synagogue, and Jesus went and found him. Not only does he associate with the lowly, with the worst of sinners, with outcasts, with the weak, he came to seek and save such as us. Jesus is the embodiment of every exhortation in Romans 12, 9 to 21. And he is a friend for sinners. And he is the one we trust. Last couple of comments about the law and the gospel. In these verses, we see that the law is good. So we've seen how it drives us to repentance. We see how Christ is the fulfillment of the law. But we see that the law is good. Because when I read this text earlier, every single phrase, every single sentence, all the saints of God look at that and we're amening the whole thing. We're like, yes, this is good. Yes, this is upright. Yes, this would produce flourishing. This would be wonderful for us to live like this. That's what we think. Why do we think that? Why do we feel that? Because we've been born again. Because we've been united to Christ. Because we're alive. And we now delight in God's law, in our inner being. We want to live according to the law. You want to live according to the law, not for your righteousness, but because it's good, it honors God, and it benefits your neighbor. And we seek conformity to the law. So those are some law and gospel considerations from this text. I want to conclude now with these thoughts. This is what I want to leave us with. Everything that Paul writes requires an otherworldly perspective. It requires a certain hope, and it requires a steadfast anchor of the soul. None of this makes any sense if we are thinking about this life only, and none of this makes any sense if this is a fragile arrangement. Paul had written earlier in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the Christian life. We are justified, and that justification means that we have a stake in the hope of the glory of God to come. This is where we live. And so we can say with the psalmist, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That I will see the Lord not with other, but with these very own eyes of mine. I will see him. That's because the Lord at heart is a redeemer. He is making all things new. And there is coming a day when he will finally make them new. And the old curse will be no more. We're going to sing about it in a minute. When all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more, and I trust there will be few dry eyes in the room because it is what we all long for. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's about Christ's second coming. He'll do it. But if we're going to live the way Paul exhorts us to live, if we're going to think the ways we've thought about today and pursue the things that we've talked about today, 
The only way any of it makes sense and the only way it's possible is if we are not living for this life but for the one to come. We give our lives in service to the Lord. We give our lives to love and care for one another. We don't avenge ourselves. We bless those who hurt us. Why? How? Because we believe there's life after the grave. And we believe that Jesus has secured that for us and that that life is what matters most. You believe that. I know you do. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This may be true for all of you. I trust it's true for many. Having said those triumphant things, do you ever question life beyond the grave? Do you ever doubt it? I have. Or do you ever doubt that you will have it? I have. Is your faith ever weak when it comes to these things? Mine is. So where do you go then? What do you have then? There are any number of things that could be said. I'll tell you what helps me, and maybe it will minister to you. I go to the words of the Savior. When I question whether, man, is this, is this legit? Is there, is there resurrection to come? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And anybody Though he die, right, yet shall he live, right, by faith in me. And it's like, all right, Jesus, I believe you. I take you at your word. You say there's a resurrection. I believe you. Yes, eternity has been written into my heart, and I long for it. But in my deepest moments of doubt and wrestling, I believe your word, that you are the resurrection and the life. That helps. I think of his words on the last night of his life on earth when he's comforting his disciples. He tells them to not be troubled, to not be afraid, believe in God, believe also in me, he says. And he says, I'm gone to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms, right? And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I would not have told you that this was the case if it wasn't true. And I am going to come back and I'm going to bring you to be with me where I am. That helps me. Or when he prays to the father in John 17, and he prays that you and I praise that we would be with him where he is so that we might behold his glory that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. And the Father hears the Son's prayer. That helps me. And then at the end of it all, I'm content to pillow my head at night. I trust you feel the same. Because with Simon Peter, in the lowest of lows, and the darkest of doubts, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? That resonates with the saints, and it helps our souls. Everything that Paul has written in our text requires an otherworldly perspective. And everything we are doing as a church is preparing us for the world to come. 
Everything Paul has written requires a certain hope and a steadfast anchor of the soul, and we have both because Christ has us. So, let's live a life of love and humility and service until he returns or calls us home. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.